Yeah. So like, how did we get into this subject in the first place? Maybe we can preface what we're about to do by kind of guiding people along through like our personal story as to why we're going to be talking about this subject matter and why we think it's important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mm -hmm. I think I was talking to you a bit about my plans to visit my uncle at Sioux Lookout. Yeah. And I was looking at where Sioux Lookout was on the map and I was like, oh, you know, it's so, so north and so far away from where I live in Montreal. And, uh, you know, it's like four or five hour drive from Thunder Bay. Oh. Yeah, yeah. From Thunder Bay. Yeah, from Thunder Bay. And I was just like, you know, it's so goddamn far, you know. And I uh, and so then I was like, you know what, I wanna I wanna see how far that is. So I went on Google Maps and then I just noticed that it was like right by the border of Canada. And I was like, what the hell? Like <laughs> you know, it just like takes forever to get there and it's still like right by the border. And then I just started zooming out, started to realize that in Canada is just so 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 vast mm-hmm. i started thinking about how the canadian population is so concentrated along the border all along that border is uh not only the concentration of people but like concentration of capital mm-hmm. and i started kind of thinking about the relationship between this strip and uh, the railroads infrastructure and railroad system which like is what nailed it all together or whatever yeah yeah and then you had brought something up really funny where you're like hey you know are we really going to pretend like the rest of the land here really belongs to canada you know like (laughs) you know like it's just like treated as if it's just there at our disposal yeah uh, as as a country as an economic system to kind of steal uh, the resources, but then, you know, we're reflecting on how all there's just tons of populations living in different parts of the land, you know, that aren't close to the to the border, and you know, have these other languages and these other memories of of the land and knowledges of the land, you know. So, so yeah, the fact that mm-hmm. we like as settlers think that we have some kind of ownership over that geographical vastness, yeah, is. <clears throat> really actually bizarre it is and the fact that we have this kind of identity which tells us that oh this is like my country you know like where does that come from like why do we have that experience of the world and like alex you're saying um almost all of the major canadian cities um are within like 100 miles of the american border mm-hmm. <laughs> the vast majority of the population is all just concentrated along this singular a border, you know, yeah. and when you start to think about that, you start to realize, like, you know, why was it set up this way? Mm-hmm. Well, the answer is that it's to defend territory, you know, yeah, that's why these colonial projects happened and they wanted to control the land, control resources, control people, this sort of stuff. So, mm-hmm. there's a very specific, like, particular history of creating a border, like, Canada really is just the creation of a border (laughs) in order to like have this geographical territory to um, draw resources from historically for the, for the British empire, you know, as against the like fledgling American uh, Republic, right? Like this is the, the split (laughs) where Canada becomes this like like, separate entity, you know? 
I think these reflections uh, sort of led us to want to do this this episode. Uh, but it's worth pointing out that we've been reflecting on what it means to be Canadian and what it means to be a settler in Canada uh, for a much longer time. And I think that true. the reason we think that uh, it's important to tackle some of the subjects that we're going to talk about today is to really understand like what that identity actually is, you know, and uh, to understand where this political, social, and economic order that we kind of take for granted today comes from and what it means. And so Alex and I were just talking before we hit record and we were saying that we've been in university and we've been in school and stuff, right? Like for decades, like uh, I've got this master's degree and stuff and all through my schooling, like I did not learn really about indigenous people in this land at all and the whole history and the history of ideas that was presented to me through the kind of mainline Canadian education system is a European story it's a European narrative of land and identity and history right absolutely I mean that's also what's motivated me right I mean I Mm -hmm. started to really develop my knowledge of my you know my settlerism yeah, a bit late in the game, you know, like in, in university, uh, but like late in university when I was finishing my undergrad and it wasn't thanks to any courses or anything like this, you know, like the, the knowledge that I really learned was um, an import, a European import that has a lot of its history, which developed in countries that I don't even, a country that I don't even live, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. that I've never even been to. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So I think that that's really true for most Canadian settlers, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, they don't know about the history of this country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, like, the discourses like, that, uh, you know, that are happening in conversations, so many of them yeah. intellectual, at least, like, are going to be mm-hmm. maybe kind of detached. Like, <laughs> Yeah. You know, I am obviously like a novice in terms of really learning about the true Mm. history of colonialism in North America, but I've had to learn about it independently. It's been books that I've read and, you know, people that I've listened to and so on, just on my own time outside of any kind of like formal education setting where I've learned about the history of colonialism and I've read indigenous histories and indigenous ideas about what is going on in this land, you know? And I think it's worth mentioning as well that earlier this year in 2020, there were these rail blockades that uh, took place, um, mostly led by indigenous people in support of the Wasoatan who um, were having their territory trespassed and transgressed by the construction of an oil pipeline, which is, you know... Continuously cert- being uh, yeah, built right now, actually. Which is being built right now, despite COVID lockdowns and everything, right? Yeah, yeah. And um, the rail blockade itself is so symbolic if you know about Canadian history. And you think about the way that power has been projected by um, settler communities across this enormous uh, geographical area. Yeah. 
right? So much of that was founded along these rail lines and along these trade routes that had been developed. So what we thought would be really cool to do was to unpack the history of Canada, but not in a way that justifies the existence of Canada. On the contrary, in a way that questions why this state exists and that challenges a lot of the fundamental assumptions about what is taking place economically and politically in this land, right? Yeah. But once we decided this would be a cool thing to take on, we quickly realized that it's also like an enormous project. So we have narrowed things down a little bit and uh, we have kind of certain angles and ways in that we want to use to get at some of these fundamental questions about why Canada exists, what's its history, um, what happened to Indigenous people in these lands, and how did these settler communities emerge. So we have a certain kind of way in, but I thought it would be good to start by telling that little story of our personal lives such that we've kind of like come to this point that this is what we want to talk about. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. And the historical period that we're really looking at is uh, is like very, very early settler history in North America, right? And really, really focusing on the, the prehistory of Canada or whatever. Like, but we're we're trying to, on top of digging up these prehistories of what would become the Canadian settler colonial state. We're also trying to stage it in a way that brings indigenous ideas into dialogue with the European ideas, you know, that we're going to be looking at and to see how they they interact and they clash. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're going to be really focusing on 16th century, 17th century, 18th century. And we're looking at many different layers. So so there's a lot of stuff that we want to cover and unpack it's it's really multi-layered it's uh it's very tangled up so we're we're gonna do our best to disentangle all these different parts of this history so uh, with that welcome back to the poplar tapes Um, We're very excited about this episode, which is primarily about the fur trade and the settlement of Turtle Island. The approach that we're going to take today is attempting to kind of bring into dialogue both indigenous forms of knowledge and uh, European histories. And so obviously the reality is that Alex and I are both settlers, and so we have a much greater familiarity with the kind of European uh, styles of history telling. And so we're going to be using those, but we're going to be also very critical of how they work. And so we are, as a kind of historical methodology, going to be um, using Marxist uh, historical materialism. And so this should be a really interesting discussion. So we thought that uh, a good approach, however, to talking about this land that we're in here in so-called North America 
is actually by grounding our discussion first in uh, indigenous histories of the land. And so, again, like our familiarity with these histories is pretty limited, but we are both situated on Haudenosaunee territory, I believe. Yeah, yeah. That's right. And so let's start with a version of an indigenous uh, creation story. And so it's it's worth pointing out that this isn't really our, our story to tell, but we are going to read to you from an indigenous writer. And as well, I wanted to point out that we recognize there are many different versions, iterations of these creation stories that um, span across Turtle Island and that are unique to those uh, these different contexts. And even within like the Haudenosaunee context, uh, I've been reading this book, The Clay We Are Made Of, which is a, a history of uh, Haudenosaunee land tenure uh, on it, on the Grand River. And in there, the, the author, Susan Hill, describes numerous different versions of the Haudenosaunee creation story and the way that it's connected in with many of their other sacred stories and uh, myths about the way that life is meant to be. You know, we got we have the great law of peace and these other stories that are that are closely interconnected. And uh, there's this whole kind of history of recording and translating these stories as well, which is problematic because uh, when these stories are told in their uh, in the languages in which they were composed, you know, um, there are meanings that are not going to be available to us as uh, English speakers, as people who don't speak those languages. Right. Like and there are even versions of these stories which are literally not available to settlers, for example, that are told only in certain kinds of uh, ritual contexts or familial contexts. So we don't, we're not reading this story in order to say like this is like exactly what has taken place or something like this, but rather to try and ground the discussion going forward in this kind of greater, like deeper sense of place, which has long pre-existed uh, European settlement in exactly. uh, this area. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And yeah, the creation the creation story that we're going to read here is uh, one that's uh, by that was written by uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer in her book Braiding Sweetgrass. In a way, we're really trying to like counter what uh, is commonly part of the the history narratives of European style histories about this continent, right? It's like because during our research, one of the things we we noticed is these like anachronistic ways of talking about this land, you know? Like they say like Jack Cartier like arrived in Canada and it's just like, no, like he didn't. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't just here. You know, like you know what I mean? Like they're just like these poor forms of wording, you know, and so we gotta we gotta like kind of work uh, with terminology uh, and think about its like historicity and its like relation to time and our own European ways of thinking about temporality and stuff. Mm-hmm. And just maybe one more note. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's like uh, one of the things that's really interesting about Wall Kimmerer's version of this story is that it kind of comes out swinging against European narratives of 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 creation and existence and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it, sets, it sets up this contrast. Yeah. Which uh, is is very intentional on the part of the writer. So we thought that would be a good way to kind of bring this in. Hopefully, we can 
catch ourselves in one of the iterations of decolonial methodologies that uh, Linda uh, Tagiwe Smith comes up with in her book, Decolonizing Methodologies, where non-Indigenous folks can contribute to decolonizing methodologies through indigenizing, which is to bring more Indigenous perspectives and stories into, into discussion and discourse. So uh, with that, uh, maybe I'll just read this. Yeah. In winter, when the green earth lies resting beneath a blanket of snow, this is the time for storytelling. The storytellers begin by calling upon those who came before, who passed the stories down to us, for we are only messengers. In the beginning, there was the sky world. She fell like a maple seed, pirouetting on an autumn breeze. A column of light streamed from a hole in the sky world, marking her path where only darkness had been before. It took her a long time to fall. In fear, or maybe hope, she clutched a bundle tightly in her hand. Hurtling downward, she saw only dark water below. But in that emptiness, there were many eyes gazing up at the sudden shaft of light. They saw there a small object, a mere dust mote in the beam. As it grew closer, they could see that it was a woman, arms outstretched, long black hair billowing behind as she spiraled toward them. The geese nodded at one another and rose together from the water in a wave of goose music. She felt the beat of their wings as they flew beneath to break her fall. Far from the only home she'd ever known, she caught her breath at the warm embrace of soft feathers as they gently carried her downward. And so it began. The geese could not hold the woman above the water for much longer, so they called a council to decide what to do. Resting on their wings, she saw them all gather. Loons, otters, swans, beavers, fish of all kinds. A great turtle floated in their midst and offered his back for her to rest upon. Gratefully, she stepped from the goose wings onto the dome of his shell. The others understood that she needed land for her home and discussed how they might serve her need. The deep divers among them had heard of mud at the bottom of the water and agreed to go find some. Loon dove first, but the distance was too far, and after a long while he surfaced with nothing to show for his efforts. One by one, the other animals offered to help. Otter, beaver, sturgeon, but the depth, the darkness, and the pressures were too great for even the strongest of swimmers. They returned gasping for air with their heads ringing. Some did not return at all. Soon only little muskrat was left, the weakest diver of all. He volunteered to go while the others looked on doubtfully. His small legs flailed as he worked his way downward, and he was gone a very long time. They waited and waited for him to return, fearing the worst for their relative, and before long, a stream of bubbles rose with the small, limp body of the muskrat. He had given his life to aid this helpless human, but then the others noticed that his paw was tightly clenched, and when they opened it, there was a small handful of mud. Turtle said, Here, put it on my back and I will hold it. Sky Woman bent and spread the mud with her hands across the shell of the turtle. Moved by the extraordinary gifts of the, of the animals, she sang in thanksgiving and then began to dance, her feet caressing the earth. The land grew and grew as she danced her thanks, 
from the dab of mud on Turtle's back until the whole earth was made, not by Skywoman alone, but from the alchemy of all the animals' gifts coupled with her deep gratitude. Together they formed what we know today as Turtle Island, our home. Like any good guest, Skywoman had not come empty-handed. The bundle was still clutched in her hand. When she toppled from the hole in the sky world, she had reached out to grab onto the tree of life that grew there. In her grasp were branches, fruits, and seeds of all kinds of plants. These she scattered onto the new ground and carefully tended each one until the world turned from brown to green. Sunlight streamed through the hole from the sky world, allowing the seeds to flourish. Wild grasses, flowers, trees, and medicines spread everywhere, and now that the animals too had plenty to eat, many came to live with her on Turtle Island. All right, so that was that was a version of a creation story of uh, this continent that we we can know as Turtle Island. Turtle Island is a kind of a a, a recurring name all over the place. You know, like it's not right. Like as we were saying, it's it's not only Robin Wall Kimmer who's uh, from the. Potawatomi Nation. It's used in different parts of what we call North America to, to refer to this continent. And so we're going to like hopefully try and hinge on this, uh, this detail. So when we talk about Turtle Island, you know, we're talking about this parallel order, you know, in cosmology. Yeah. I find Braiding Sweetgrass to be such a fascinating book because it's written kind of like for a popular audience, you know, and it, it can even be kind of feel good kitschy like storytelling at times but at the same time it's incredibly deep and has um, all these kind of philosophical implications that can be teased out of uh, some of the ideas that are in there so I, I find it to be a really uh, rich and worthwhile text and um, it's also worth pointing out that in that particular uh, essay from which this telling of the story of Skywoman comes Kimmer goes on to juxtapose Sky Woman with the story of Eve and the way that Eve is uh, kicked out of the Garden of Eden by God and is uh, laying with all these curses and where her relationship to the land is one of hardship and um, labor, which uh, is totally absent from the story of Sky Woman and the children of Sky Woman. So Robin Walkimer kind of contrasts these two mythic women and talks about the way that Eve gets the short end of the stick and kind of so that's why I say before that uh, she kind of comes out swinging with this story in that she's going after the logics of the relationship between human beings and the natural world that are embedded in the European cosmologies. And she is criticizing them from the perspective of an indigenous cosmology of creation. And I think that that is a really um, fascinating way of staging this conflict between these two different ways, whole, like, total ways of knowing and these two different civilizational knowledges, you know? Yeah, uh, so. absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And and we're kind of, we're almost actually following in her footsteps a little bit here where we're bringing up this creation story and then uh, focusing on this encounter, right? 
Like we're focusing on this encounter between this uh, E figure and, you know, Christianity and the whole history that comes, like the whole history of European colonization that comes with this encounter, you know? Yeah, exactly. Not in, not in its fullness, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, but in, in, in a narrow way, right? Yeah, like yeah. in, as we were saying before, yeah. like we have a certain kind of way in. Yeah. And so I think that's where we want to go next. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So really the, the, bulk of what we want to talk about right now is actually the fur trade. And so the fur trade is certainly not the only trade history or form of resource extraction or uh, relationship between European cultures and indigenous cultures and this land that exists, but it is a very important articulation of that relationship. And it's a very important driver of the way in which colonialism actually took place, right? So we thought that by focusing on the fur trade and kind of drawing out some of this history, we could gain some really interesting insights about what is going on in this process of colonization. And we're going to be coming at it from uh, an angle... That's developed by Marx in the German ideology, right? Um, historic, historical materialism. So it might it might be good for us to kind of lay out some of the ideas of historical materialism, the difference that Marx makes between his idea of historical materialism and intellectual history and these different kinds of histories, and then frame some of our discussion on the kind of the European aspects of this history that we're telling uh, within some of these concepts uh, that Marx uh, brings up, right? So then we can help ourselves uh, understand the relationship between fur as commodity, the fur trade, and how that plays a role in the history making of uh, early settler Canada, you know, quote unquote. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. And, other parts, other countries. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah, Marx develops a really useful set of analytical tools for understanding history. And interestingly, it hasn't been applied to Canadian history as much as you might imagine, considering how it's probably one of the most important historical disciplines, right? And there's a number of interesting reasons for this, but I think that Canada is actually in a way like the perfect example of what Marx is talking about, where he says that the economic forces of production are the primary object of historical study, right? And what he calls ideological concepts and institutions and representations, those are produced by the underlying productive forces of a given society. You know, when you look at the history of Canada, the way that, as we'll see, like it's driven by companies, it's driven by industry, it's driven by commerce, like in every, almost every case, like these are the forces or sectors that kind of take the lead in this process of colonization, which eventually culminates in um, the creation of the state of Canada, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. to me, it seems like a really obvious example to apply historical materialism to this history, and yet it hasn't been done a lot. And so maybe I'll just touch on a few of the reasons why that is the case. So 
in the historical Canadian establishment, you know, in the universities in Canada, there has been a lot of resistance to using historical materialist methodologies. And I mean, from a Marxist perspective, we would say that's because there are class interests in keeping those methodologies (laughs) out of the way that Canada tells its history, you know, like Canada needs to justify its own history. It needs to justify its existence. And um, historical materialism is the kind of analysis which will call that fundamentally into question and will challenge the um, kind of identity formation that uh, the nation of Canada has sort of constructed for itself and the narratives of Canadian history that are the most prevalent amongst the way that people imagine their own past and identities. But there is some history there as well, where there were certain smaller schools of historical materialist uh, historians in Canada over time, but they, so like I said, they encountered a lot of resistance from the kind of mainstream historical establishment. Also um, in the 1970s, which was kind of the end of that period of historical materialist histories of Canada, being written, uh, the kind of school of historical materialism broke down as it was splintered off into different factions of like, you know, kind of left national, like social democratic type of uh, histories and political movements, and also the emergence of like critical race and gender theory in the late 70s and early 1980s, which were ways of telling left history that were very self-confident and um, had narratives that they saw as like very important to tell and had criticisms of historical materialism's uh, techniques mm-hmm. and uh, not to dismiss those criticisms, but it it is rather that the historical materialists were simply not organized or uh, strong enough to really survive these challenges that emerged at that time on top of just the general marginalization from mainstream history in Canada. So a lot of these kind of methods of telling history haven't been employed in our particular context uh, as much as like you might imagine going into this. I mean, yeah, uh, to, to add on to that, like, the creation of like ideology or the production of ideology and how that's connected to the the productive forces of a historical period to kind of like unpack that a little bit more maybe like for Marx when he's you know when he's writing this uh, manuscript on uh, really developing his idea of historical materialism this is you know mid mid 19th century you know it's 1846 or something you know it wasn't published until the 20th century but he he was kind of fed up with uh, what he believed to be insufficient ways of history writing. Uh, when he was writing this, actually, he was like also really fed up with uh, the dominant form of philosophical idealism in Germany. So like it was it was a reaction to like Hegelianism and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Like many people have often said, you know, Marx turned Hegel on his head because instead of thinking of like materialism being a product of consciousness and like uh, uh, the realm of uh, ideas, he was like, actually, you know, that stuff like comes after like materialism is like the like the very basis, you know, his form of history writing tries to turn over to the kinds of sensuous activity, human activity that's involved involved in the production of the basic needs of life, which can be met in order for 
other forms of history to kind of emerge, right? And like, mm-hmm. there's this interesting pivotal shift that he focuses on, which is like the division of labor, where he he talks about how. Uh, with the emergence of the division of labor, there was this ability for like knowledge, which was embedded in practical uh, or like in praxis and practical consciousness, um, was able to detach itself uh, through the division of labor um, to create this whole other class of like me- what he calls like mental laborers, right? And like they aren't necessarily uh, reflecting the like they can create a history that isn't necessarily connected to like material realities, right? Like Mm -hmm. they can like create, you know, like an ideology or different kinds of knowledge about history that can uh, try and universalize itself or, or, or like align itself with the interests of the ruling class of the, uh, of the particular period who try to make their interests appear as the common interests of, of all you know yeah. so that like there is this like uniform investment uh, upon all the dominated subjects in their own domination you know mm-hmm. um and so like yeah there are these two different f- there's this uh, di- kind of dichotomy he's setting up right between uh like this uh this kind of materialist history embedded in uh activity and in production commerce and industry and then on the other hand like this uh intellectual history that is capable of existing through all of the uh, economic relations that uh, exist that can create the conditions a possibility for you know like these other forms of accumulation and writing and stuff like this and like yeah so to circle back and kind of <laughs> try and walk through that a little uh, in another way. So, yeah, when when we talk about Marx turning Hegel on his head. So Hegel has this idea, you know, that there is this kind of spirit of world history, which is instantiating itself in these developing forms of consciousness over time. And so the institutions of of human life and society are outworkings of this like fundamental progression of spirit right of of ideas and so some might say that's a simplification of hegel but that's kind of like a help just a helpful (laughs) a helpful starting point and so but marx says well you know that can't be true because any idea that exists in the world is an idea that's in someone's head Right? Like ideas aren't just out there. They exist. You know, they have to have some kind of uh, like real instantiation in the minds of people. So w- rather than beginning with, with trying to write this history of ideas, we should begin with telling this history of people. Mm-hmm. people in the world. So, you know, he says that history can be divided into the history of nature and the history of man, human beings. The two sides, he says, are not, however, completely independent. As long as human beings have existed, nature and human beings have affected one another. Right? Yeah. So, he argues that the first premise of all human existence and therefore of all history is that human beings must be able to live in order to make history, right? 
Mm-hmm. You can't make history if you starve to death. No one remembers you. You die. <laughs> <laughs> Any ideas you had in your mind are not relevant. <laughs> yeah. Right? If you don't live and you're not alive, then there's no possibility for history. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's the first premise, right? Is he mm-hmm. says, we need to start from the reality of mm-hmm. the human beings in the world in order to really tell history. And we totally. need to start from the way in which they are able to generate their own lives in way the way that they're able to feed themselves, clothe themselves, house themselves mm-hmm. in the world, you know? Yeah. And if we can explain that, then we can start doing history. So he says the second point, the second premise is that once a need is satisfied, so once an individual or a group of individuals have met their their need, he says, which requires the action of satisfying and the acquisition of the instrument for this purpose, new needs arise. The production of new needs is the first historical act. Okay, what does that mean? So let's say I am an ancient proto-human being, and I realize that I can eat whatever kind of plants, let's say, and then once I've done that, and then I've sustained myself enough to live another day, I think, oh, gee, like, in order to continue to be able to eat this plant, I need to be able to reproduce the plant. And to do that, I'm going to need a bit of space to plant it. I'm going to need a tool to do that, you know, or if I'm a hunter gatherer, I'll say, well, if I'm going to hunt that animal, I'm going to need a bow and arrow, you know, whatever. (laughs) Right. So then all of a sudden you begin producing material products in the world and creating new needs as a result, as those products become increasingly complex and take on uh, new and different forms. So that's really what history is, is the way in which people are producing their ability to live in the world. Okay. So those are the first two premises. The third, he says, interestingly, the third circumstance entering into historical development from the very beginning is the fact that men who daily remake their lives begin to make other men, begin to propagate the relationship between husband and wife, parents and children, the family. So it's not just one person, but it's different groups of People And Marx talks about the way that those groups are different in different contexts and, uh, you know, there are different ideas about how those groups should operate and so on. But all that is secondary to the fact that there are groups of people making their lives out of the world, right, producing their means of subsistence and survival. So as these modes of production, right? These ways of producing the ability to live in the world become increasingly sophisticated and complex over time and they come to incorporate more and more people, they can begin to be described as societies, as social forms of cooperation, right? Because there are always going to be these forms of cooperation between different people and different groups of people in order to produce their means of survival. And those are getting more and more complex and those become what Marx calls productive forces. So he says that we observe in addition 
that the multitude of productive forces accessible to human beings determines the nature of society and that the, quote, history of mankind must always be studied and treated in relation to the history of industry and exchange. So uh, that's kind of like a brief primer intro to what we're talking about when we say historical materialism. It is the study of history rooted in the productive forces of a given society that asks, um, what are those forces? How are these means of life, these ways of life being reproduced through this relationship between human beings and the natural world? And so then what Alex went on to talk about is this question of the division of labor and ideological production. And so as these productive forces and these productive modes, right, uh, become more and more complex, there are different divisions of, of labor where certain people enact certain processes uh, to produce as part of this whole social order. And uh, the first real division of labor for Marx, he says, uh, is the separation between the person who does the physical labor, who gets the food to survive, and the person who does a kind of mental labor, who, uh, you know, tells uh, narratives about who we are as a people, and then you, in exchange, give me uh, some food, right? <laughs> and uh, so there are these divisions of labor where this kind of priest figure emerges, and he says the priest is the first ideologist. But what he's really driving at with this kind of weird, like, I guess, metaphor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there's no like pure priest or whatever, you know, but the um, what he's really trying to drive at there is that the ideas about why a certain productive mode exists, why a certain society exists and like what it's doing and what it's goals are and what's valuable about it. Those are the kinds of things which are produced by the productive forces themselves through this division of labor. Uh, so this is kind of a, again, just a brief little primer on what we're talking about when we say historical materialism. It's this focus on the way that individual human beings and groups of human beings produce their means of survival out of the natural world. Exactly. And this, this, you know, this idea of historical materialism, which we're bringing into this uh, episode, it has its, you know, it has its roots in Germany, right? And it has its roots in a historical account of like Europe's economies and developments, or like interactions between, you know, feudal society and uh, in different forms of labor and all this other kind of stuff, right? Like that's really what Marx talks about. But what's helpful about this is that, you know. Marx is really describing a significant period of history uh, in Europe, which is the one that we're kind of working with in in our own approach to the history of early uh, settler colonialism in Canada, right? Like, mm -hmm. or like in, on Turtle Island. The value of like, I guess, using Marx here is just he's like uh, developing an idea of the history or like he traces the development of the history of commerce and industry in Europe and we can use that to help us understand the relationship between that context and like the context of like settlements you know and like how yeah. they are still tied to that history as we kind of 
look at like the ways in which they interact yeah. and stuff. Yeah, so if you want to know the answer to questions like how were European societies able to send ships and human beings and supplies, commodities over into the new world and then establish permanent settlements there in order to extract resources, reproduce their societies and so on. Marx has a lot of incredibly helpful analyses that can give us answers to those questions, you know, um, that will help us understand what's going on in this exchange of, uh, and, and in these journeys across the ocean, you know, yeah. like, why are they making these journeys? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> why would they do this? Uh, you know, those kind of answering those kind of questions, it, you know, you could give like a, an, an ideological answer where it's like, well, it's the spirit of exploration and it's the thirst for knowledge that has driven man to discover the whole world or something like this. But the reality is like the thirst for knowledge doesn't produce ships, doesn't produce building materials, doesn't supply long, painful voyages. And, um, you know, if you return from a voyage to a quote-unquote new world and uh, you don't bring anything back with you that's seen as valuable, do you think that society is going to let you go again just because you're yeah. curious? No, of course no, not. No, no, yeah, it's for you power. <laughs> yeah, so it's like – and this is obvious from the very first uh, voyages uh, on the part of Christopher Columbus and so on where he is constantly needing to uh, justify what he's doing in terms of the – their the Europeans' ability to harvest uh, gold and silver and slaves from this previously this land which they had previously known nothing about, and at that time they continued to really know nothing about. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so it's it's like that's why they're doing it, right? Like yeah. we, we we want to say that there are economic reasons and re- reasons related to the productive forces of European societies which motivate and materially constitute the process of colonization. And so we're interested in that because we don't believe the narrative that it's about human freedom or some bullshit. Like we want to know what took place, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so Marx can help us get there. And yeah. that's why he's so valuable in this context. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And so Marx, in fact, does talk about North America. And he talks about colonization explicitly. And he has some really interesting things to say about it. And in some ways, he's wrong about it, you know? And so this uh, is really interesting. So in the particular text in the German ideology, he says that in places like North America, which had sort of began in terms of European settlement at uh, already very advanced, like historical period. You know, European societies at the time when they encountered Turtle Island were very developed, advanced societies that had an incredible degree of social complexity. And he says that, you know, that's just the reality. And so he says that such countries have no other premises, right, than the individuals who settled there and were induced to do so becomes because the forms of interactions in the old countries did not correspond to their wants. 
Thus, they begin with the most advanced individuals of the old countries and with the correspondingly most advanced forms of interaction, even before this form of interaction has been established in the old countries. A similar relationship is established by conquest when a form of interaction uh, which has evolved elsewhere is introduced complete into a conquered territory uh, while it was still encumbered with interests and relationships from earlier periods at home. It can and must be established completely and without hindrance in the conquered country to assume the conqueror's lasting power. End quote. Okay, so there's a ton to unpack here, but uh, I think there's actually a few points which we're going to have to return to. But why I actually read out that quote was to show the way that Marx is wrong about what happened in colonization in North America, where saying that there are no other natural premises than the individuals who settled in North America is a clear example of the erasure of indigenous people. So, you know, he's just wrong about that. It's not true that it was the only premises are the individual are the European individuals, right? That's there are hundreds of millions of uh, indigenous individuals who also were living and existing in Turtle Island with their own incredibly complex and highly developed uh, forms of social organization and their own highly complex uh, kinds of productive forces. Like, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and yeah. so they are also producing their life out of uh, the natural world, right? Marx says mm-hmm. that nature prior to the existence of human beings can no longer be said to exist. There is no pure nature which isn't in relation to um, human beings and their productive forces. That's just as true in North America prior to colonization and throughout the process of colonization as it is in Europe or anywhere else in the world. You know, there is no pure nature. This wasn't an untouched land in the way it was often constructed by Europeans. That's just simply false. There were hundreds of millions of people living here in incredibly highly developed and uh, complex societies. There's a very interesting little like – I guess you call it a pamphlet written by someone named Gord Hill, and it is entitled 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance. And it is useful in this context because it offers uh, basically a historical materialist account of North America and uh, actually all of uh, the Americas, but starting from the premise that there were in fact people <laughs> in this land and that, you know, they had their own complex uh, societies. You know, he, he writes that the Western Hemisphere was a densely populated land, a land with its own people and ways of life, as varied and diverse as any other land in the world. In fact, it was not called America. <laughs> it was called Turtle Island or Cuscatlan or Abayayala. The first peoples inhabited every region of the Americas, living with the diversity of the land and developing cultural life ways dependent on the land. The numbers approached 70 to 100 million uh, prior to European colonization. So then he goes on to summarize the different uh, nations within the geographical regions that they lived by precisely outlining their modes of production. So it's very interesting. Uh, so I won't go through all that because it's a bit long-winded. However, um, this is a very helpful corrective to Marx's oversight. And it's actually worth noting as well that Marx improves on this point later in his uh, oeuvre when uh, he writes in uh, Das Kapital, uh, where he there is some recognition of the history of uh, indigenous peoples in the Americas. Um, I really want to 
place stress on this idea of like the colonies being these vanguards. There's this development of this like spirit of free trade and competition. These forms of trade that aren't quite under the same kinds of restrictions as they are back home in the national context. What I want to do right now before we get further into the history of the fur trade is read an excerpt from uh, Leanne Simpson's lecture that she gave called A Short History of the Blockade, Giant Beavers, Diplomacy, and Regeneration in Nishnabewin. So I'm not I'm not really good at pronouncing this, but you can find it uh, through like CBC podcasts. Anyway, so uh, Leanne, Leanne Simpson is uh, an Anishinaabe writer and academic, and um, two things I want to read out to you. Quote, in colonial minds, the beaver is nature's engineer, the earliest forester, the first hydrologist. The beaver became an emblem of Canada's own sovereignty. And then further in, she says, um, according to traditional Anishinaabe worldviews, beavers, or amikwag, represent and embody the politics and ethical practices of wisdom. So she says, Amikwag build dams, dams that create deep pools and channels that don't freeze, creating winter worlds for their fish relatives, deep pools and channels that drought-proof the landscape, dams that make wetlands full of moose, deer, and elk, food cooling stations, places to hide and muck to keep the flies away. Dams that open spaces in the canopy so sunlight increases, making warm and shallow aquatic habitat around the edges of ponds for amphibians and insects. Dams that create plunge pools on the downstream side for juvenile fish, gravel for spawning in homes and food for birds. And who is the first back after a fire to start the regeneration make work? A mick is a world builder. A mick is the one that brings the water. A mick is the one that brings forth more life. A mick is the one that works continuously with water and land and plant and animal nations and consent and diplomacy to create worlds, to create shared worlds. Prior to contact with white people, it is estimated that Kanekkung, or Turtle Island, was home to between 60 and 400 million beavers. That's three to five beavers for every kilometer of stream and uh, river. A beaver in nearly every headwater stream in North America. Biologists call the beaver a keystone species, a species so important to an ecosystem that without it, the ecosystem would collapse. A species that continually creates habitats and food sources for other beings. Families that filter and purify water, clans that replenish the soil with nutrients, communities that manage spring floods in water temperature, a nation that continually gives a beaver dam a blockade. Life-giving, generative, affirmative, a world-building place governed by deep relationality. So think of this nuanced understanding of the beaver and it's uh, embedded in like the ecology of Turtle Island and how important its role is in the production of other forms of life and animal relatives and like supporting an entire a highly complex network of ecosystems. Yeah. And you know, and then compare that compare that to this like extremely reductive 
you know, like capitalist commodity perception of like the beaver that like kind of just like strips it of its life form and just like views it views it as like dead matter, you know, that can yeah. be like used in like an economic profit oriented context. Yeah. It, it 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 just becomes even more disturbing when you think about that and the extent to which the fur trade, uh, which was carried out by French and British and probably Dutch too, like, you know, um, where all all of these different European forces that have begun to kind of vie for control over this land that they assume is like theirs... Um, all they all begin to vie, and they're they're building these uh, these industry networks and fur trading companies, and slaughtering all these beavers, and radically altering the the ecology of uh, of Turtle Island. Right, so yeah. it's just like it's really freaking scary when you mm-hmm. when you start to think about you know two hundred years of this slaughtering, you know that goes on, mm-hmm. and it's like near extinction of uh, the beaver. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, like. You know, who is the beaver? What's the beaver doing? What are they all about? If we're asking those kind of questions, I think Alex has like kind of gone a long way towards describing the way that indigenous people um, saw beavers as part of this complex relational web of their uh, uh, that supports life, you know, not only for the people, but also for fish and like, you know, just literally like in almost infinite other species through the way that they alter uh, waterways and landscapes, you know, like the geography of the north of this continent was, as pointed out in this quote, like, fundamentally rooted in the activity and life-making activity of beavers, you know? And that was just part of the way that this continent existed. But when Europeans came to North America, they came from a context where they had been already kind of hunting beavers in Europe, the European beavers, because their fur is particularly valuable for the process of felting, and they would felt the beaver fur and then turn it into hats. Fine hats. Fine hats. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, which, you know, is so bizarre in so many ways. But uh, so when Europeans uh, were like the Spanish, for example, are colonizing, you know, what we now call South America and uh, uh, Central America – they were engaged in this large-scale expropriation of gold and silver. And they were using indigenous people as a kind of slave labor force in these mines and plantations that they were setting up, right? But Mm. Europeans, when they're colonizing North America, they found uh, lower population density and the lands which were fertile for crops and abundant in animals, but which didn't really contain many precious metals that were accessible to 17th century uh, European technologies, right? So in order to uh, accumulate wealth, and from these uh, these lands, Europeans had to accumulate crop, like agricultural wealth, or practice the fur trade. That's the way that they that they saw it. And so, I think it's worth again, like just bringing up this contrast between the holistic kind of like 
complex relational way that beavers were understood by indigenous people um, at the time. And then the way that they were identified as a potential like natural commodity by Europeans. So Europeans, you know, we've been talking about these kind of the way in which intellectual production is a result of the dominant forms of material productions in a given society, right? So the ideas that Europeans had in their head when they came to North America was that they're looking for different resources to turn into commodities, to turn into wealth that would be recognized in the context of their European societies. And uh, they quickly identified the beaver as a major source of wealth for them through this process of uh, producing hats, which, you know, is so weird when you think about it. Um, Like, it's so arbitrary, you know, you didn't have to wear the beaver hat. Like, there's no, like, it didn't serve a necessary function. It didn't, like, give you life. It just was fashionable within, like, your social context. And, uh, you know, you knew you could make money through trading in beaver furs. So the Europeans like brought, they brought their own kind of way of looking at things to this Mm -hmm. land. And they, you know, through these kind of uh, intellectual ideas that they had about the way that nature is, they saw that the beavers as dead stuff and as potential capital. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they are the beaver in that way is completely stripped of this whole kind of rich um, ecological relational role that they have um, and is instead valuable only as a dead thing, only for its fur. Right. It's skin, you know, it's chilling actually. And so Europeans developed ways of commodifying beaver fur. And so they had different gradations of which furs they thought were most valuable which were the best for making hats they wanted winter fur with the longest level of growth you know and they were most willing to pay for these kinds of furs mm-hmm. and so these exotics from the new world you know yes like. yeah exactly <laughs> and so all these questions of like how do you project status in a european society and so on come up uh in this context right Mm-hmm. No, exactly. So it's it's interesting because like as Keegan's pointing out, right, there's this there's this whole grading system for different kinds of furs and how they can be used in the production of clothing and uh you know and like it's luxury clothing right like you know anybody you could make other types of clothing like you don't need <laughs> to make it out of this stuff. So but uh but what we're seeing here is this like transatlantic co-constitution of like you know, beings that exist in Turtle Island that have been stripped from their contacts, that are being viewed in this, like, very reductive and commercial way, you know, subjected to this commercial regime, being brought over to France or uh, England, you know, or wherever in Europe, and constituting people's, like, form of, like, the production of their aesthetics and shit like this. And this kind of like circulation of goods is something that played a really, really fundamental role in the creation of the idea of the new world in the imagination of Europeans, right? Like Mm -hmm. beyond just the beaver, you have, I don't know, like other objects like 
clothing that like indigenous people had like traded with uh, I don't know like colonists and shit like this and mm-hmm. like plants different types of plants um, you had you know early settler maps and all these different kinds of um, objects that would be circulating back through uh, ports along like France uh, of Bordeaux going into Paris, which was the imperial core of the French Empire, kind of accumulating there, and like all of these different objects were highly coveted by intellectuals and like collectors, and uh, they would be organized into particular ways, and they were being used for you know like I don't know like cabinets of curiosities, probably in like aristocratic like realm, but they were also being uh, contextualized by intellectuals that were existing in France itself. So like like they're building colonial scientific discourses and different discourses about the new world having never traveled there on the basis of all of these European ideas, you know, circulating through like the maps, the the writings, their travel journals or whatever, and these objects that are coming in. And so they're building this ideology, uh, right? This uh, ideology about the new world. So like all of these, we, all of these, like all of those objects and things are the materials that were used to like sculpt the, this idea intellectually. Yeah. So um, Marx wrote that, quote, in every epoch, the ideas of the ruling class are the ruling ideas. That is, the class that is the ruling material power of society is at the same time its ruling intellectual power. The class having the means of material production has also control over the means of intellectual production that it also controls, generally speaking. The ideas of those who lack the means of intellectual production. So what's he saying there, right? Those people who are ruling European societies, who have the power over the way in which production happens, also have power over the way in which ideas are produced. So the ideas that are going to be in the minds of everyone within that society are ideas that are invented by this class who is in power. And like we were saying before, they're interested in presenting their interests, like their desires as the good of the whole society, right? So they're going to use these uh, decontextualized ephemera from North America to construct ideas about what North America is that justify their exploitation and despoilation of that continent in order to prop up their own wealth. So they're going to mythologize that through these ideas of, uh, you know, terra nullis, it's this empty land, it's like ripe for our conquest, Uh, indigenous people, uh, they don't know how to use the land, whatever, blah, 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 all this stuff, right? These are the ideas that they're producing that are then in the minds of the people who are actually going out and carrying out the actions of like getting resources from that land, of dealing with indigenous people on the kind of day-to-day basis. Getting permission to like get money to fund your expedition or whatever. Yeah. It's like, oh, well, the fine beaver furs. <laughs> you know, and like I have this, fi- you know, like all these different... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, forms of uh, knowledge that would uh, enable people to sail across the sea and all this other shit. All these things were kind of working together to carry out these expeditions and uh, try and build these colonies and stuff. But Yeah, exactly. And so the process of colonization, I just wanted to point this out, is uh, 
simultaneously a material and an ideological project, right? And uh, as Gord Hill points out, this is evident even from like Columbus's first voyage. He quote, says, quote, the duality of Colombo's mission and the subsequent European invasion that followed was the Christianization of non-Europeans and the expropriation of their lands. The two goals are not unconnected. Christianization was not merely a program for European religious indoctrination. It was an attack on non-European culture, which was one barrier to colonization. And it was a legally and morally sanctioned form of uh, a war of conquest. And he says, even his name was prophetic to the world he encountered. Christopher Columbus translates to Christ bearer colonizer. So I just wanted to point that out. But as well, it's interesting to note that there this isn't just like a one like monolithic like process of evil or something like that. Like there are internal tensions within this uh ideological project uh on the part of the Europeans, you know. Uh, so one example would be – one famous example is like Bartolomé Las Casas was a Spanish priest who uh, went to the Americas and witnessed a lot of the early acts that the conquistadors were carrying out. And uh, they were horrific. It was a horrific genocide where they were just massacring people with impunity, right? And um, he actually – extensively documented the horrors and decried them on the basis of his own kind of moral convictions. So, okay, there's one example where the process of colonization and the process of Christianization like fit together unevenly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is just the product of, of the complex uh, societies that existed in Europe at that time. And so there's another North American example that I wanted to uh, bring up where um, – so there uh, was uh, a Jesuit priest who observed in uh, the 1650s that there's this conflict that was going on between the Hurons and the Iroquois, so-called. And so he wrote this about that. He said, quote, I had hoped to promote a peace between the Hurons and the Iroquois so that Christianity could be spread among them and to open the roads to trade with many nations who were not accessible But some members of the company advised me that it was not expedient since if the Hurons were at peace with the Iroquois, the same Iroquois would lead the Hurons to trade with the Dutch and divert them from Quebec, which was more distant. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, you can see that there are these tensions and conflicts between the the ideological mission of the Europeans and the mission of colonization, which I, I just think is interesting to note and to kind of bring up some of this nuance. No, definitely, definitely. Like you, you don't want to homogenize like all of the all of the members of a particular like nation or whatever. Like there, it's interesting to think about these nuances, even if like some of their ideas didn't like win. Yeah, <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but uh, but it's true. It's 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 worth it's worth pointing these out. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's worth bringing them up. And also to show that Europeans weren't like locked into this thing where they couldn't recognize indigenous people as human, you know? Yeah, it's yeah. like the dominant interests involved like dehumanizing indigenous people. But mm. the fact that it was possible to recognize indigenous people as humans from the perspective yeah. of the European, you know, mm-hmm. is chilling because it means that a lot of people ignored that and like, yeah. you know, were driven to set aside their kind of like empathy and like recognition of a shared Absolutely. humanity, you know, yeah. in order to carry out these acts of violence for the sake of like just getting money. Yeah. Um, so that's, 
disturb. No, totally, totally. No, I mm-hmm. agree. Okay, so I wanted to actually read a passage from Gord Hill that is just helpful for understanding what happened to indigenous economies when they encountered European economies. Like what happened kind of if you zoom out a little bit and think about in North America, especially like what transpired there. So he wrote that through the establishment and expansion of European colonies, increased contact with First Nations brought extensive trading as well as disease epidemics and conflict. Um, Trade gradually served to break up indigenous societies. Quote, Indian industry becomes less specialized and divided as it entered into closer relations of exchange with European industry. For the Indians, inter-societal commerce triumphed by subordinating and eliminating all crafts except those directly related to European Indian trade. While intertribal trading relations survived only insofar as they served the purposes of intersocietal trade. Thus, trade with European industry developed a relationship of growing dependence on the European colonists. The items traded to natives, metal pots, knives, and occasionally rifles, were of European manufacture and supply. The trade also disrupted and changed traditional native methods in other ways, with the introduction of alcohol and exterminationist forms of warfare, including torture, under the direction of the colonialists, as well as an overall escalation of warfare in the competition-driven fur trade and introduction of European rifles. End quote. Okay, so this is really interesting. And so when... You know, the French first came and started establishing the fur trade. They would, as we mentioned, like they had these gradations for how they would purchase beaver fur and so on and so forth. They would purchase it from uh, indigenous groups who would trade the beaver fur for European-made commodities and goods. Like he says, the metal pots, knives, rifles, and so on. And so... This created a situation where the whole kind of productive forces of indigenous economies were reoriented towards imperial centers. Yeah, Yeah. towards imperial centers and towards producing goods for trade with the European forms of, uh, of manufacture. So... You know, indigenous people were induced to hunt beavers at greater and greater and greater levels because that was the only good that they were able to produce that European societies valued in trade. Nothing else for them was valuable that indigenous societies could produce. And so this is one of these kind of impacts of capitalism on economies which are not capitalist, is that it works to reorient the productive and laboring forces within their those societies towards capitalist ends. So all of a sudden, these indigenous economies and all the labor within those economies become work towards extracting beaver fur from the yeah. natural environment and then selling it by weight um, for European goods, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So like the Europeans, the European settlers are actually coming and, you know, we've already discussed how they, 
the the establishment of the the fur trade and you know hunting beavers like fucked up the ecology and shit but you know it it, it disrupts these uh, indigenous indigenous economies and is like importing these like more capitalist or forms of labor practices mm-hmm. you know like it's it's really it's really crazy to think about how in these like lived out experiences these ideas are so embodied and manifest and they're actually changing dynamically changing the way that people are like living out their realities and stuff and it's uh it's just nuts like yeah bringing this kind of labor is fundamentally altering your your like being in relation to a world history now you know it's being like yeah. subsumed into this far reaches of uh capitalism yeah exactly suddenly you're yeah. caught up you know, yeah. in this whole like world historical process, whereas previously, you know, if you're an indigenous person in North America, you're involved in the economies of your own society and trade with like adjacent mm. societies and so on. You know, all of a yeah. sudden your whole life is reoriented in relation to this emerging global mm. capitalist market. So that is like dramatically new. And so what it you know, to kind of put it in Marxist terms, like what's going on here is that there's a new division of labor that's introduced between um, European societies and indigenous societies, right? Whereas mm-hmm. previously, like indigenous societies would have had complex divisions of labor, like according to their own forms of relation. Instead, there's this new division of labor imposed, which is an intersocietal division of labor where these whole societies are valuable to this kind of world historical market only insofar yeah. as they can produce these furs. All of a sudden, everyone's hunting beaver fur. You know, yeah. your whole society is oriented around hunting beaver fur. There is this this open season on beavers. Like people are yeah. just like going far and wide as they exterminate the beavers within a given uh, area. And furthermore, there is increasing competition over access to European goods. So indigenous um, societies go to war amongst one another and are, as like Gord Hill is pointing out, empowered through European technologies to wage these wars in like significantly more violent and brutal fashion. You know, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden they have rifles and you Mm -hmm. can exterminate every single person in order to take their supply of beer for, right? Like in Harold Innes' book, The Fur Trade in Canada, he documents the way that Haudenosaunee people were not like traditionally uh, i mean they were they were hunters but not to the degree of some of the other indigenous peoples in the area because they were primarily focused around um, like agricultural modes of production and mm-hmm. so this put them at a competitive disadvantage with respect to the hurons and other groups who were uh, involved in the trading of furs and the hunting of uh, beavers and so those groups had a, a privileged access to um, european goods But the response to this on the part of the Haudenosaunee was uh, to fight those groups, right? To fight them for the goods. And so uh, he documents the way they would wait on rivers for convoys of canoe to go past with with their new European rifles. Then they would shoot every single person who was in the the convoy to take all of the fur, you know, and use it for themselves to trade for goods. So it just like – the, the the stakes of conflict are raised significantly and the degree of violence as a result yeah, exactly. also continues to climb through these new technologies. Yeah, there's like there's this like raw brutality that like the like European economy brings with it, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, and like European yeah. civilization brings these like weapons, and it brings yeah, exactly. Uh, and it brings these uh, uh, relations uh, to each other, and this idea of like the commodity value, mm -hmm. you know. And it's like over this fucking commodity value of beavers, there's literal like warfare going on. Like yeah. it's nuts. Like this is this is this is uh this is like neoliberalism. Like <laughs> no, it's like social Dar you know, the social Darwinist survival of the fittest like comp competition shit. Uh over this abstract idea of a fucking beaver, man. Yeah. Like this is like such a it's so depressing. <laughs> like it's really sad. It's really sad that uh you know, happens. If I could just yeah. make one last point yeah, yeah. on this, I think I really, I've been thinking about this. I really like, not liking like, a, I think it's good, but I think it's a helpful, uh, a helpful framing to talk about indigenous economies and what happens to indigenous economies and modes of production, right? Yeah. Where it's like, you know, when, with the introduction of access to European goods and European uh, productive forces, it's like mm -hmm. this vacuum, you know, that just sucks up all of the productive capacities of these indigenous societies that it encounters because it just completely reorients them towards producing goods for trade with Europeans. And, um, you know, Europeans were actively engaged in this. When they would encounter new indigenous people, they would encourage them to hunt beaver and to take up practices that would help in the hunting of beaver and the movement of beaver skins around the waterways, you know, let's say a, a given group of indigenous people didn't farm certain plants that Europeans found useful when they were moving from place to place in order to feed themselves while they were seeking out these new trade opportunities with indigenous groups to get beaver skins. They would encourage you to plant these plants. They would say, hey, like, you know, if you grow these plants, then uh, you'll have something useful to us and uh, you should stop doing whatever you're doing. You should stop fishing. You should go uh, and hunt beavers uh, and you should grow these plants and go hunt beavers. So they would actively come into these societies and through basically like bribery, it, it induced them to change their change their cultural practices and change their modes of production in order to fit the the desires European of, of style. the European yeah. market. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah, European style of commerce and yeah. labor practice. Yeah, exactly. Can I maybe like start talking about a bit of the like French? economic structure of the French settlements and stuff. Yeah. So something that's actually kind of interesting about the terminological history of uh, Quebec is that it was, Quebec was actually initially called Canada. Canada was actually a vernacular name uh, for New France. Mm -hmm. So like New France and Canada were uh, alternative uh, names for the same settlement. And Canada is also a word that comes from Iroquoian vocabulary, but lots lots of people already know that. But mm -hmm. it's uh, it's still interesting to think about. It's like taking indigenous name and then like fashioning this whole European project out of the indigenous name. It's yeah. like self indigenizing European people or something like this. Yeah. It's kind of weird. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I mean, Jacques Cartier he roughly arrived in uh, you know in Turtle Island in 1534, and Cartier's colony that he tried to establish completely failed and <laughs> you know, he didn't do a good job. Uh, and seven years later, in 1541, there's this man named uh, Jean-Francois de La Roque. He, he took over for a while and tried to, you know, build this colony uh, for the French uh, kingdom. And about 
About 30 years later, in 1577, a Breton lord, Troilus du Meguez, who was a nobleman responsible for ruling over border territories, so he's like a marquis, he took over after this uh, this other guy, De Lorac, and his powers were very similar. 1599 comes around, and uh, this new French guy named François Glavet, who was uh, the captain of the Royal French Marines, he was given the privilege by the French monarch to work in the fur trade. And uh, with this new privilege, he wanted to found a company, and he did this with a group of rich merchants from Saint-Malo. As François Gravet prepared for his journey to uh, Turtle Island, Samuel Champlain decided he would join him for the ride, and Gravet's company had official permission for Monopoly, but he lost the monopoly and his uh, privilege over the fur trade once a bunch of French merchants kind of like teamed together. So after Pierre de Gois started this, uh, or like appointed Samuel de Champlain as a special lieutenant for his monopoly, King Henry IV, who had recently died, and the and the intensifying spirit of the fur trade and the competition that was forming in these colonies led Pierre de Gois to abandon his commercial endeavors. And so after that, Samuel de Champlain, who was authorized by the French king to take over all of the buildings that were active in the fur trading company, he, um, he was authorized to kind of take those under his control. Champlain's powers aroused uh, a bunch of opposition and disturbances on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, back in the ports, and like there's kind of disturbances in France and French kingdom over de Champlain's uh, takeover. Uh, I guess you could call it. And uh, and then Champlain proposed to create a colonial trading company, uh, which he called uh, the Compagnie de Rouen et de Saint-Malo. So the Company of Rouen and of Saint-Malo. This company lasted about 11 years, eventually succumbed to conflict with a new company that popped up and was also authorized by the French king. Only the Montmorency's company and Samuel de Champlain's company eventually merged, and they just became the Montmorency company. And this company was supposed to fulfill a political role under the French king to uh, expand the French kingdom by populating the colony, but uh, it kept failing to fulfill this political role for the for for the uh, kingdom. So there are all these like ways in which the company was really just like doing a shitty and terrible job at like holding this colony together, and uh, a lot of that uh, the reason for that was because um, profit was the like primary driver for the fur trading company. You know, like it wasn't really fulfilling a societal role that was supposed to help the French kingdom, you know, like these were a bunch of merchants that were kind of investing in these companies. And uh, ultimately, their main function was to like create revenue and accumulate uh, beaver fur uh, uh, (coughs) that would be sent back to to, uh, France, you know. And finally, after all of these uh, competitive kind of companies. Richelieu, the cardinal, he decided to uh, replace the Montmorency company with a company called the Company of 100 Associates. It was also supposed to fulfill this uh, 
a function to populate the French colony. You know, it had objectives that it was supposed to reach. It was supposed to reach uh, 4,000 men and women by 1643. It also had, like, societal responsibilities. It was supposed to feed and house um, and offer the basic life necessities for all of the, the colony's inhabitants. There's this whole desire on the part of the French king to kind of recreate feudal society, you know, on Turtle Island. Mm -hmm. But that didn't really happen until 1664 when Louis XIV established the Sovereign Council of New France, and that marked the transition of a commercial regime of governance to a royal regime of governance. Mm -hmm. And so... I guess what's really interesting to think about here is, once again, this economic foundation to the possibility of the creation of these colonies and political paradigms. You know, like what preceded the Sovereign Council of New France, which is like an official royal jurisdictional administration, was like these companies, you know, that like obviously were failing, you know, but they were companies nonetheless that carried out these roles to populate New France and to establish certain kinds of like jurisdictional orders yeah. and uh, political orders, which is like really weird, I found like, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, I mean, you could say that um, it's very similar to the Marxist analysis where the mode of production needs to be established before um, like political order can exist. Like political order is like secondary to these kinds of modes of production. And it's so like the superstructure. Yeah, exactly. The base and superstructure idea. Yeah, so the base has to be established before this like superstructural political element can really like take hold. And yet they have this kind of important like crucial uh, dialectical relationship because I think one of the interesting things about the history of all these different companies like rising and falling and competing with one another and like yeah. competing with one another and competing against uh, with different indigenous groups as well who like are trying to monopolize uh, for their own benefit trade with uh, the Europeans, you know, mm. um, like all this competition is going on at the level of the colony. But in yeah. terms of the shipping between the old country, the center, quote unquote, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, the imperial centers in Paris and uh, in London and so on, the shipping of the manufactured goods and of the furs uh, on this back and forth journey, like that has to be protected and carried out by the landed power of the established uh, states and empires. Because quite simply, the overhead cost of like taking yeah. on an overseas voyage at that time was just too high it would, that it was out of reach for any individual company or, or, or conglomerate of merchants to actually undertake. So while there was competition that happened between these different companies, when at the end of the day, when they sold their beaver furs to the port to be shipped, they were back in the hands of the feudal state. This is a really interesting point because it's kind of points to the fact that these markets that were emerging that Alex was just talking about, the way that like these different markets uh, and like forces within a market and like people and actors and so on kind of rose and fell, like the ability for that to happen at the end of the day was underwritten by the just like raw power of the state and like its accumulated wealth um, mm -hmm. over time, you know? And uh, eventually, like, these merchants will become 
wealthier than yeah. the landed aristocracy, but at that time they weren't. And so yeah. it's important to note that this is the history of how markets came to exist, you know, as we understand them. When we think about markets and competition in economics and we think about these different firms like providing goods and services and so on, like the environment in which it's possible for that to take place, as you can uh, – if you trace it back to its origins in, for example, a place like New France, its origins are uh, – lie in this kind of like state protection and uh, establishment, you know. Yeah. And so this is where I just think, like, uh, just to kind of make it take a jab, like, libertarians, like, have no idea what the hell they're talking about when it comes to, like, economic, <laughs> comes to economics. Like, uh, because in the last analysis, like, markets are always upheld by state force and state yeah. power, you know. And um, Marx, Marx talks about this, and he has some interesting points, if I can just, like, walk through them real quick. Yeah, um, totally. Basically, he points out that, like, uh, manufacturing was establishing itself at that time in France and in Europe in general, but these societies experienced this like huge influx of wealth through their colonial projects, you know. And yet at the same time, that influx of wealth began to change the internal class dynamics of of those societies, and um, it actually went on to outgrow the kind of shackles of feudalism, you might say. And so when, when the French king, like, is empowering these, like, viscounts and so on to, like, go mm-hmm. and establish feudalism, it never quite takes hold in the new world. And instead, what you see mm-hmm. is the kind of proto-capitalism that totally. uh, is really about this trade in capital and, and commodities and this just, like, raw exploitation of labor, you know? That's what it is on the ground, even though the French king like wants to like, he's like, oh, we got to get in there with like our lords and like, we'll just reproduce the society that we already have, you know? Yeah. Uh, But eventually like he and like his, his gang of lords and shit are like disempowered (laughs) through this accumulating wealth on the part of the merchants and uh, the, 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 the shippers, right? Yeah, but totally. that doesn't happen right away. Early on, the merchants and especially the shippers, like they insisted on these protections, on these monopolies, on um, these tariffs that would protect individual kind of national um, systems and so on, right? Mm-hmm. Marx says that uh, like commerce and navigation, though, ha- had expanded more rapidly than manufacturing, which played at first a secondary role. Uh, colonies became important consumers. And so after a long struggle, the individual European nations shared the opening world market. This period begins with the navigation laws and colonial monopolies. Um, Competition of the nations among themselves was excluded so far as possible by tariffs, prohibitions, and treaties. In the last resort, this competitive struggle was carried out and decided in wars. Another point there is like, manufacturing early on needed these all these protections of its markets in order to um, sustain and establish itself and so it, it it really needed the state to like establish these forms of monopoly so I just think that's a really kind of important point about the early history of capitalism the way that it was like explicitly backed and underwritten by um, these empires like, through the projection mm-hmm. of force and violence, you know, it's like at the end of the day, if someone like comes after your trade route, like then you send the army and you kill that person and like all of their family, you know. Yeah, and, the same shit goes on today. It's just like yeah. with more highly advanced technology. Yeah, exactly. 
And yeah. Uh, the, yeah, the idea that we actually live in this world of like free markets or whatever is like, completely misguided. Hell, I mean to to circle back to the like be- very beginning of like the uh, the the episode. Yeah. Uh, uh, the RCMP on Wet'suwet'en territory. You know. Yeah. Like, they came in militarized, and uh, it was uh, to back up this fucking yeah exactly pipeline. <laughs> like, it's like shit. oh no, we're gonna uh, yeah. yeah, it's a free market, but also uh, the state is gonna like protect at the end of the day private property. You know, yeah, exactly, and uh, yeah. like the, the this the ability for the market to like reproduce itself is upheld through through state violence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So that was uh, an interesting kind of history of the of New France and like all these companies. You know, it's important to remember are engaged actively in trade with indigenous uh, various indigenous nations who are the ones like actually producing the raw commodities in terms of um, the beaver fur. That is then like shipped back to Europe. And so these companies are all like they are trading companies, right? Like that's what they do. They trade European manufactured goods for the uh, raw materials produced by these indigenous economies, which have been reoriented towards um, laboring for the sake of, of European economies, right? Mm-hmm. But the history is, is, is very interesting. And um, w- what ends up happening is that the British, you know, there's this competition that's going on between nations, both like all the multiple European nations are all like protecting their own, protecting their own colonies, protecting their own trade routes and so on and have like strict boundaries that they aren't allowed to sort of like compete with one another in terms of this stuff. Like the companies aren't allowed to compete against like a French company is not competing against a British company. England is competing against France, you know? Yeah, exactly. So that it, the, that's the level that the corporate, uh, that the competition is operating at. But what the British ended up doing was undermining the French significantly in um, North America by establishing the uh, Hudson's Bay Company. And so the mm-hmm. Hudson's Bay Company set up all these trading forts along river routes off of Hudson's Bay, obviously in James Bay. And so they established all these forts. And then they, uh, by doing that, they actually undercut the supply of beaver fur that the French were trading in. Because uh, the French were trading with uh, the Ottawas and the Huron and so on, who were themselves also acting as middlemen to like other more far flung uh, indigenous groups who were like deeper into the interior who were hunting these beavers, you know, for trade in order to acquire uh, European goods from the uh, the Ottawas and the Hurons. Like they were acting as kind of middlemen, right? And uh, this was the way in which the French companies were were acquiring the supply of fur. And the best furs, like we talked about the way there are these different gradations and like people wanted like the thicker, like denser winter furs from deeper in the interior. That supply of fur that the French were trading in was actually coming from the area around the uh, James Bay and Hudson's Bay. So when the English just came in and set up these trading posts, like right along those, uh, those route, those river routes, they got in the way of the French <laughs> and uh, started to siphon off their supply of their best fur. And as well, the manufacturing in England uh, at that time was more highly developed, and they were producing uh, better quality goods. And indigenous people knew this, and so they started to increasingly trade with the the British over the French, and this led to you know a whole series of wars and conflict and uh, so mm-hmm. on. 
Marx talks about the way that this like period of mercantilist monopolies gives way to like the next period of um, early capitalism, right? Where some of these boundaries between like national companies competing start to break down and this new class is this new industrialist class uh this ownership class is emerging in europe yeah um and so he talks about the way that trade between banks uh starts to take place you know across national boundaries the uh, the former like bans on gold and silver export are lifted. There's the creation of paper money. You know the development of financial instruments for speculation in stocks, and capital starts to lose its its strictly national character and becomes this kind of international global power. And it's it, it, it sort of fledgling at that time, like in the 17th century, but that's what's starting to take place, right? And that's the direction that it's moving. And it's worth pointing out that the uh, this question of like finance and speculation and investment, you know, some of the earliest examples of that were merchants coming together to invest in overseas trade voyages to trade for these uh, like raw commodities in far-flung places. So because it was so expensive to run a single voyage, and so if you invest all your money in one ship and then it sails to it sails across the Atlantic Ocean and it, it sinks, you just lost yeah. your entire investment, right? So yeah. merchants began to develop techniques for investing it the, that same amount of money in a variety of different voyages. So you have one-seventh of your money in seven different ships. So even if one sinks, you still get six that don't sink, that come back, and that you can still get a return on your investment. So a lot of these techniques about, yeah, like stock speculation um, are also deeply connected to the real like material process of trade that's going on between the colonies and uh, the industrial or sorry. Yeah. The, oh. Yeah. The industrial and imperial centers, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. That is, that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So as I was saying, uh, this new kind of phase of capitalism was emerging at the time in the 17th century and um, manufacturing was becoming kind of like newly empowered by this influx of wealth um, from the colonies. Uh, Marx writes, the concentration of trade and manufacturing in one country England developed irresistibly in the 17th century and gradually created for that country a relative world market and thus a demand for its manufactured product, which could no longer be met by the prevailing industrial forces of production. This leads to the emergence of like big industry proper and uh, the application, Marx says, of elemental forces to mechanical production there are extensive divisions of labor and uh, like manufacturing and like industrial power just really kicks off in this period. You know, the, he wrote he wrote that there already existed in England the remaining conditions for this new phase: freedom of competition within the nation and the development of theoretical mechanics, as perfected by Newton, the most popular science in France and England in the 18th century. Uh, free competition within the nation itself everywhere has uh, had the obtain had to be obtained by revolution. And so he points out that there were revolutions in 1640 and 1688 in England, which uh, 
facilitated the these developments of like new forms of production and overthrew the old feudal orders and generated the new capitalist orders proper. And so this has impacts in North America as well, where the, you know, British capitalism ultimately trumps and overpowers French capitalism, which really had like established initially this whole kind of mechanism of the fur trade in what we today call Canada, right? And so, yeah, the British, the British conquer New France, or the French, the yeah. French colonists. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is shortly after uh, the Battle of Abraham, right? Like the Battle of Abraham is this like documented piece of colonial early settler euro settler colonial history there's like this famous painting that is called what is it the the death of wolf or something like this or the death of general wolf and it's like supposed to be this uh, depiction of like the end of the battle but anyway they um but the battle lasted uh, only like 10 minutes or something <laughs> yeah it's like 30 minute battle or something <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So the the French lost. Uh, the French lost that battle. Yeah. But um, anyway, so after this battle, the British drafted the Royal Proclamation of 1763. So what is this Royal Proclamation? Historically, the Royal Proclamation of 1763 has been read from a more colonial uh, perspective, and this is a huge issue that uh, this um, this historian John Burroughs brings up. He he provides this um, rereading of the Royal Proclamation by contextualizing it in the history of both British and Indigenous perspectives of what it actually really meant. the uh, The Royal Proclamation was a document that had three different types of Principles. So the first principle that was uh, included in it was that uh, the colonial governments uh, were forbidden to survey or grant any unceded lands. That was one. Second principle forbid British subjects to settle on or purchase what were considered Indian lands, according to the legal terminology of the day. And uh, the third principle established a system of public purchases that was ultimately aimed to actually try and extinguish land title to, uh, that would um, belong to indigenous people. So there's like internal contradiction in the Royal Proclamation when it's viewed completely from this like, colonial perspective. On the one hand, there are these two principles that are supposed to protect indigenous sovereignty and like respect indigenous autonomy. And then there's this other principle that's like trying to undermine it. Yeah. If private property is just something that doesn't exist in your language and like if... Uh, ownership is not a concept you know how the hell are you ever supposed to see eye to eye over these things especially if ownerlessness is something that's like you know more a part of your philosophy Mm -hmm. yeah from this from the more kind of colonial perspective uh reading these three principles is pretty problematic and and john the reason for this is as follows (laughs) um john burroughs he points out that the Royal Proclamation actually is something that needs to be read in the context of uh, a a gathering that took place uh, in Niagara, and it's associated with what's called the Treaty of Niagara. And the Treaty of Niagara 
was a gathering between First Nation peoples and uh, British settlers where a multinational and, and polyconstitutional alliance uh, was formed, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Yeah. So it was an alliance that uh, was called the Covenant Chain of Friendship. And uh, the Royal Proclamation of 1763 was just one of uh, the constitutional documents that were accepted and acknowledged at this gathering. Mm-hmm. Beyond the written words of the Royal Proclamation, there were promises and methods that were used by uh, the British settlers and First Nations that included oral statements in wampum belts, which are also constitutional and diplomatic documents themselves. Mm-hmm. There's this interesting legal historian or legal academic named uh, Robert A. Williams. And I just want to read this quote about the wampum belts that he he brings up. So he provides this really cool insight into the symbolism of the two world wampum as a constitutional document, is what he says. When the Haudenosaunee first came into contact with the European nations, treaties of peace and friendship were made. Each was symbolized by the guswanta, or two row wampum. There's a bed of white wampum which symbolizes the purity of the agreement. There are two rows of purple, and those two rows have the spirit of your ancestors and mine. There are three beads of wampum separating the two rows, and they symbolize peace, friendship, and respect. These two rows will symbolize two paths, or two vessels, traveling down the same river together. One, a birch bark canoe, will be for the Indian people, their laws, their customs, and their ways. The other, a ship, will be for the white people in their laws, their customs, in their ways. We shall each travel the river together, side by side, but in our own boat. Neither of us will try to steer the other's vessel. So the, the two-row wampum belt is this, uh, this constitutional document that illustrates a First Nation crown relationship founded on peace, friendship, and respect. In the recognition and remembrance of the Treaty of Niagara and the Royal Proclamation together, and what they stood for continued to be acknowledged and re-acknowledged throughout history. So the original uh, Treaty of Niagara took place in uh, 1764. About 54 years later, uh, another gathering took place, and uh, it was between First Nations of Northern Lake Huron and British representatives of the Crown. And at this meeting, the Treaty of Niagara, um, the Wampum Belts, and the principles of peace, friendship, and respect were once again acknowledged. Another re-acknowledgement of the same things I just mentioned took place 18 years later. That was in 1836 in the Manitoulin Island Treaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was uh, between the British Crown and First Nations of the Upper Great Lakes. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to think about the continuity here, like the historical instances that uh, demonstrated an ongoing kind of mutual recognition and reassertion between indigenous nations and the British crown. And, you know, they respected the sovereignty of indigenous peoples and nations. They respected their alliances, their commercial agreements, self-government over land. They also involved uh, British settlers uh, learning the diplomatic practices of gift-giving that were common amongst uh, Indigenous nations, and uh, mutual peace, friendship, and respect were also part of these these agreements. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really important to think about this history of the Royal Proclamation in the context in which it's recognized. In this polyconstitutional context of the Treaty of Niagara, 
because these are the founding principles of like a British crown indigenous relationship, you know, and like this is a, a, an interpretation that's been overlooked, you know, like indigenous perspectives just haven't really been in, included in a lot of the, the re-readings from a European colonial perspective of this document. So like, it's just like slowly completely denied these, uh, these foundational principles that it was supposed to be yeah. established on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the Europeans were so obsessed with like comparing indigenous cultures to like quote unquote less developed versions of their own cultures that they couldn't recognize like the way in which indigenous cultures were already highly developed societies. And like, they didn't, they didn't understand, you know, on the one hand, I was talking about how like indigenous people probably didn't understand this uh, process of land purchasing. But on the other hand, the Europeans didn't understand the kind of yeah. complex constitutional forms that existed in the, in indigenous contexts. And that, yeah. that, for example, the Haudenosaunee people were practicing, you know, Susan Hill uh, in her book talks about the way that Europeans would like go to these negotiations and uh, there would be days of ceremony and they would just mm. not consider that to be relevant to the negotiation until this like final part where you, there's a document signing or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. you know, you guys just weren't even paying attention for like yeah. basically the entire negotiation here, you know, like yeah, exactly. you, you know, these are foundings of, I, I mean, in a way, like to kind of use a Mark Fisher term, like these are lost futures where there were yeah. like interesting polyconstitutional uh, orders that could emerge where like there's a kind of mutuality between uh, European descended settlers and indigenous people in these lands. And, you know, Europeans just like, completely squandered that opportunity all for the sake of their like rapacious pursuit of profit and like their just obsession with fucking genociding people, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. And they're like, respect? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> Friendship. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you have more to yeah. more to say on the rail? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, it's also really crazy because um, the Treaty of Niagara allegedly included two thousand chiefs. Like that is so many fucking chiefs, eh? Like yeah. two thousand chiefs that came from twenty four different nations that were spread across the continent. Wow! And uh, apparently, certain groups that came spent weeks or months traveling to get to the to the event. So this was like a major yeah. important event, like between the British colonists and like the indigenous nations that were living in North America. Yeah. You know. Think about the organizational effort that went into like bringing all those people together. Yeah, so much. Yeah, yeah clearly, indigenous people thought that this was an important event. Yeah, you know, yeah. and the fact that like I didn't even know that what this was until we started doing this research. You yeah. know, just goes to show how little Europeans valued the possibility of like building societies together and like coming up yeah. with negotiations and d diplomatic forms of peace, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Honestly, everyone who lives, like, I live, what, like, an hour's drive away from Niagara? Like, everyone who lives here should know what that is, what this is. Yeah. And the fact totally. that we just don't is, like, so baffling. Yeah. And it's just very telling of the degree to which this, like, ideological production has been has, forgotten. Like, yeah. 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 I don't live an hour away from Niagara, but I live an hour away from Ganawaga, you know, and I live yeah. on uh, Haudenosaunee land. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people don't even really pay attention to that at all. 
you know, there are these histories that we need to bring back into our consciousness, you know, and start to relearn the history of Canada. Yeah. I, I think there's truth to the Mark Fisher reference, like mm-hmm. to say that these are lost futures, but I also am very optimistic kind of person who says like, you know, I want to like learn about these things so that like these could be still a possible future yeah, to like totally. work on, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, yeah. I think we're here like in defense of lost causes or like, you know, <laughs> yeah. out here advocating for like th- yeah. this analysis is in service of like a better way of life, you know? So yeah, yeah like, the legal foundations of these different constitutional orders are like, of course, they're important, you know, there are legal arguments to be made about why there are certain kinds of jurisdictions, why Canadian courts wouldn't have jurisdiction over certain lands and certain practices, you know, like, those those arguments are like there to be made uh, on this basis. If you really kind of dig into the history of land acquisition in, um, in Canada. And so I actually wanted to make another connection to this Treaty of Niagara and especially because I think it shows just how world historical it was is that, okay, so that happened in 1764, right? A year after Mm -hmm. the Royal Proclamation. And so it was a kind of ratification of the Royal Proclamation, but according to this indigenous understanding, right? So there are these kind of like two paradigms which are not fitting properly. But nonetheless, um, the British crown is agreeing to basically pull settlers out of huge swaths of land where people were, were, were settling. Right. So they would bring all the settlers back into the 13 colonies in what today is America from beyond the Appalachians, where many British people had begun to settle. And it's no coincidence that in 1776, so like 12 years later, that's when the American Revolution takes place. It's no coincidence that when the British Crown says we actually are going to like ratify this um, agreement and you guys, uh, you're going to have to pull the settlers back from this land and you're going to have to stop carrying out all these acts of brutal violence against indigenous people, the American colonies refuse to do that. And they, they react against this agreement and this possibility by constituting their own constitutional order, which precisely ignores this, uh, this agreement, you know, and breaks from the British crown in order to quote unquote, liberate themselves, uh, precisely from the kind of ways in which this agreement is going to be binding on them, you know, so that they can continue to, uh, settle and, uh, settle beyond the Appalachians and can continue to, just frankly brutalized indigenous people through violence. Totally. And so when the kind of revolutionary war f- took off, many uh, indigenous people uh, fought on the side of the British precisely to defend the, the Niagara Treaty and uh, the Royal Proclamation because they wanted to maintain the existence of this separate and distinct Indian territory, you know? And so it's like they weren't fighting for the British. They were fighting for their land and their homes and for this constitutional order and this agreement, which they had worked so hard to organize and then implement, you know. And so uh, it's just very interesting to me that what now is the border of Canada and the United States is 
traced by these battles and like indigenous people like especially like Haudenosaunee uh, people fought and gave their lives to defend those boundaries and those did become the borders like uh, the Americans weren't able to you know push north of the Great Lakes and yeah. so it, that <laughs> I, I just think that that's it's not really considered in the story of the origins of America you know is yeah, it's, totally. is its relativity to this treaty at, at Niagara and uh, to uh, indigenous societies like that's just ignored and intentionally kind of forgotten in that story and as well like it goes to show the way that like the founding of the American whole project is about continuing to perpetuate settler violence. And it's a refusal of mutuality and poly-constitutionality with uh, Indigenous nations, right? Like, it's a violent denial of that possibility. That's what, that's what America is, quite frankly. I mean, <laughs> and Canada, Canada as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, totally. yeah, it's like they're saying, no, we are going to carry out this genocide, you know? Yeah. Fuck that, man. Like, that's yeah, disgusting. No, it's fucked. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. This is also another reason why it's so important to kind of, like, do these archaeological digs into, the, like, the history, you know? Yeah. The cultural archives of, like, uh, you know, Canada and start to pull out these uh, these hidden sedimented histories that have been like buried beneath the surface of what we see on our day to day, you know? Yeah, like, absolutely. Began to really start thinking about how ideology was uh, produced by Canadian governments in order to forget all of these other these other relationships that were part of uh, the history of this this land and this yeah. continent. And, but like, it's such an interesting historical event. Yeah, yeah. it is. It really is. And it, yeah. it's like, and if you kind of give it its proper importance, you know, and we take it yeah. really seriously, then we can see that like these things that we, that, you know, white settlers view as like the important historical events, like the American, like founding of the American Republic and so on, like those are reactionary, fundamentally deeply reactionary events. You know, they're reacting against like these possibilities of other forms of life and other forms of like productive societies emerging. You know, they're they're acting yeah. to like shut that down, you know, yeah, like, and they're I mean, acting yeah, yeah. to to enforce like their race, their race hate, you know. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, at the time of that treaty, the Treaty of Niagara, you know, that was, in fact, a political order that was going to be established exactly yeah you know like yeah i mean the brits still did have those like weird contradictions the royal proclamation and oh, maybe they sure. didn't really understand the wampum yeah. belts and stuff but like <laughs> yeah but the possibility was there you know like it's not it's not impossible to learn right yeah like yeah it's no, not absolutely. like <laughs> it's not outside of the realm of possibility yeah. to like learn a different language or like learn a different custom, you know? Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course that's yeah. possible. And yeah. uh, it's like those are the kinds of things that ultimately were – those possibilities were like burned up in the fire of brutal yeah. reactionary violence, you know? And that's what's so kind of sad and unsettling about this yeah. whole that whole narrative. You know who else has this kind of vision – at least I, I, I think yeah. he's uh, Kent, Kent Monkman, yeah. actually, because in one of his paintings called uh, Miss Chief's Wet Dream, uh, it has all kinds of references in it. So I'm not going to like reduce it down to one thing, but it's, uh, it is modeled on the Wampa Belt. 
And it's like Mischief's wet dream, Mischief, who is his alter ego. Yeah. Her wet dream is the possibility of this Turo Wampin political order. Yeah. It's like depicting in this Jericho style of uh, the Raft of Medusa, the European vessel, which is the raft, and it's like kind of shipwrecked and shit. It's coming up and there's a canoe. And it's the other vessel, you know, mm-hmm. and there's just like mischief kind of in the middle of the canoe laying on her back and like, she's probably orgasming or something, but anyway, yeah. it's like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but, <laughs> but there's this, uh, I, I really like that vision of political futurity, you know, yeah, absolutely. Like, that's also something I want to think about in relation to Canada, you know, and like how to live on on this land as a settler and like how to think about futurity and like political futurity and political organizing. And totally, like- totally. In this kind of multi-constitutional order that we're talking about, like it's also ripe with these possibilities of different productive modes and different forms of the production of life, you know? Because, like, as we reach the outer limits of what the environment can sustain in terms of brutal industrial despoilation, you know, through just, like, the dominant European paradigms, like, that exist in this land, well, we need other productive modes if we're going to continue to produce our own life. We will die if we, like, continue on this path. We literally need these other forms of uh, modes of production in order to like continue to meaningfully sustain life like that is the point that we're at you know historically speaking by going back and looking at these other possibilities and saying like hey we've come a long way like we've walked a long way down this road but maybe we were going the wrong way we need to backtrack a little bit and take a different turn like you know <laughs> like, <laughs> But, yeah. like, that doesn't seem like so far fetched at the at when we when you actually like think critically about our current historical moment, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I I feel like this is like a pretty good point to sort of start to wrap up to you. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Because like we had some kind of cool reflections there at the end about like, future political possibilities, and I hope folks kind of. Are, are, are picking up some of those threads and what we've been saying to you that it's not just all like relentless like hopelessness in terms of like being like trapped by capitalism like it is that but um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know but by telling this story we can start to look yeah. for the ways out you know because if you don't know yeah. this history like if you don't think about the way in which these modes of production have like fundamentally shaped the society that we live in today then you're not going to know what to do and you're not going to know the best ways forward because those ways, they aren't in the, you know, state forms that we call Canada and America today. As we've seen, the European political orders are installed only on the basis of like deeply exploitative economic forms, which, you know, undergird them. I mean, and, and they're locked in this, like in this kind of relationship. So it's a dead end. Like Canada, you know, I, I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I think we want to do future segments where we talk more about <laughs> confederation and everything. But like when we talk through this history, it just like seems so apparent to me that Canada is like a political form is a dead end. But there are other possibilities if we as settlers turn against the settler modes of production and begin to organize 
outside and against that. You know, like Marx talks about the way that while there have been many revolutions which have like transformed the productive mode, they've never aimed at the productive mode as such. And uh, I think that that's one of the things we could take away here too, is that Canada and like these states and establishments and so on that have emerged in the wake of processes like the fur trade, those productive modes have been enormously destructive and have not they produced a society that continues to be like hugely destructive on the natural environment and on the people who live in the territory over which it projects power. And so I think that's really what we want to use. We want to get every tool that we can to, uh, to undermine that. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, in Braiding Sweetgrass, there's this, uh, this passage where Robin Wall Kimmer is talking about, her childhood working at a strawberry farm. What's what's kind of interesting and insightful about this uh, story is uh, how she describes how this um, farmer that she used to work for named uh, Mrs. Crandall, <laughs> such a funny name, <laughs> Mrs. Crandall, she would watch over the strawberry pickers and uh, she would use the language of private property and ownership over the strawberries. So she would say things like... Um, these berries belong to me, and uh, I don't want to see you kids eating my strawberries, you know? Yeah. And uh, Kimmer is just like, she juxtaposes this paradigm of picking strawberries to, like, earn money in this, like, paradigm of capitalism. She juxtaposes that to, like, these wild strawberry bushes in the backyard of her childhood home and how, like, she could go there and, like, pick the strawberries freely and nobody has any ownership over these strawberries. And this is, like, a part of uh, the gifts that uh, the earth brings to us. And she begins to describe this thinking that she calls, like, gift thinking. It's rooted in this idea of uh, a gift economy, kind of a reminder that there are these alternative ways of thinking about economy outside of this paradigm of like monetary value, private property, and these kinds of things. And I, I just wanted to bring that in because it's about like finding these alternative modes of thinking to try and like fight back or combat these uh, these like European yeah. ideas, you know, yeah. about like production and commodification and monetary value and labor and yada yada yada. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Um, and as well, like in the story, uh, Kimura's story of the strawberries, she talks about the way that the strawberries are like a loving gift, like from the earth. And so mm-hmm. it like also gives the earth this agency that can be in relationship with someone or with people, you know? And yeah. so like that idea of like relationship and reciprocity with the earth, like restores like a kind of life and agency to the earth, which is lost in European conceptions of private property, which see the earth as like dead stuff to be traded. And like it, it ultimately has like this abstract value, which is instantiated in capital, you know? So there's this like abstraction from the vitality of of the earth. And it's like, well, what does economy look like? What does like production and society look like if we start talking and really taking seriously this idea of like recentering the vitality and relationship with um, the earth and with our non-human relatives in the language that some indigenous folks will use, right? Yeah. There's like so much promise there. Yeah. 
I guess I'll just leave it at that. There's there's a, there's a lot yeah. of promise there. Yeah. Yeah, there is. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully for settlers as well, you know, in these yeah. kind of in these relational like mutual kind of poly constitutional orders that have existed in the past and have been ratified and have these moments of founding, yeah. you know, so why are the only moments of founding that we recognize the American Revolution and the fucking Canadian, you know, it's like, why are Come on. those moments of founding <laughs> are reactions against like these kind of more fundamental like <laughs> moments <Yeah>. of founding <laughs> and these more kind of like creative generative possibilities. So I just think like, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's kind of where this analysis has like led led me today is uh, to that kind of point of frustration with uh, with the stories of founding that we do value, but also with the kind of promise of of, of the other. Yeah. Okay. Great great note to end on. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Let's wrap it here. If you found this to be uh, insightful or valuable at all, I would ask that uh, you. You know, share it with your friends. I think especially if you're a, Can- a Canadian settler, then this conversation and these these conversations that we're going to continue to have like are for are for you and they're about our lives, you know? So I think that uh, if you did find something of value there, like share it with other, other settler people and uh, let's try and get some of these conversations going, you know? So uh, yeah, feel free to share the episode widely and um, follow us on Twitter at the Poplar Tapes you know send us an email thepoplartapes at gmail.com and uh, we're on Instagram if you want to follow us on Instagram yeah <laughs> yeah so uh, yeah. hit us up <laughs>